0: To this message brought to you by Living Word Church. We trust that as you hear the Word of God preached, you'll be encouraged and equipped to love God and do His will. If you're looking for a church home, please feel free to visit our Sunday morning worship service at 10 a.m. or visit our website at www.livingwordchurch.cc. And now for our message. I will read it to you and then we'll pray and kind of launch right in. And it may or may not end up here behind me. 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in in, uh, verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, to warn those who are idle and disruptive, to encourage the disheartened, to help the weak and be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Today's passage is this, Do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all, hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. And then it ends with this, May God himself... The God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for what you've shown us already in this passage about what it means to be faithful to you as the people of God. And we pray, Lord, that as we explore uh, perhaps a more difficult, unfamiliar passage this morning. That you would speak to us, God. Your, your spirit um, has been here before we arrived this morning. Um, so rather than inviting you to come, we acknowledge your presence here. And we ask, God, that we would be receptive to what you want to do. You do not need to be convinced to work in our lives this morning. God, we need to be open to that work. And so uh, with our lips and our hearts, we acknowledge, we confess, that we are open to the working of your spirit in us this morning. So speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, as I said, um, verse 19, 20, and 21, and 22 are the uh, verses we're going to focus on this morning. It reads, do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all, hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. And I do think that this is maybe somewhat unfamiliar to us, uh, I cannot recall having spent much time um, growing up in church or going to Bible college, really dealing with this passage, Um, and my hope this morning is not so much um, to explain it to you, but to invite us to see the working of the Spirit in a new way, Um, to get inside the mind of Paul and of those who would have read this letter to see what God was doing among them and how it might help us to imagine the work that God wants to do among us. And so to get there, um, I'll just point out that one of the really neat things about the New Testament as a whole is that one way of looking at it is that it's like a record uh, of how the earliest Christians reckoned with the reality that Jesus had been raised from the dead. right? And 1 Thessalonians is unique because it's one of maybe the single earliest written book in the New Testament. People debate over that, but it's, it's certainly one of the earliest. And so it really gives us a glimpse into how those early Christians were dealing with the problem of Jesus' resurrection. And in some sense, right, it was a problem, because it didn't fit their theology of resurrection. It, it didn't happen the way they thought it was supposed to happen, and so it created some disruption for them as they sought to figure out what it might mean, right? With the exception of one small group called the Sadducees, Jews did and still do believe in resurrection, but they believe that it is to happen at a specific time and in a very specific way. And the Old Testament, which is the, the scripture for the Jews, the Bible for them, uh, refers to this in a couple of different ways, right? You might, you might have heard or read the phrase, the day of the Lord, or you might remember reading about um, coming judgment, things like that, the word that I'm going to use or the phrase that I'll use this morning is the day of the kingdom. Because the idea in Jewish understanding, which is not my expertise, but I hope I can give us just a little bit of framework, the idea was that one day, one day the, the Messiah that God had promised to his people would come. And what he would do when he arrived, essentially, is that he would judge all peoples. And those who were wicked and unfaithful to God would go down to Sheol, whatever that is. Um, and, And those who were righteous would live and would reign with the Messiah in his kingdom. And those who were righteous who had died on that day would be raised from the dead, resurrected, and would participate in living and reigning in the Messiah's kingdom. So I'll call it, uh, for this morning, the day of the kingdom. And this, and only this, was how resurrection was supposed to happen in the Jewish mindset. It's present throughout the Old Testament in various places, but always with the understanding that it will happen on that day, the day of the kingdom, when the Messiah would come, and his kingdom would be established on earth. So we can imagine together this morning that these early Christians, many of whom were familiar with and really steeped in Jewish ways of seeing the world, would have considered the resurrection to be a disruptive thing because it wasn't supposed to happen in that order, right? So they would have had to reckon with it and ask themselves what it might mean, right? The resurrection was disruptive for those early Christians who were Jewish, um, many or most of them, um, so it was disruptive. And as I, as I thought through that this week, I just wondered if the resurrection is disruptive for us and in what ways it might be disruptive. As we were singing this morning about um, Jesus being raised and what that means, um, that our Redeemer uh, was crucified, but he lives, I looked around and I know that there are many of us who are struggling with this or that, right? It might be financial. It might be a health issue for us or our family. Uh, It could just be the, the weight of life, right? And yet so many of us, when we sing that our Redeemer lives, those things take a back seat to the reality that Jesus has been raised from the dead. So yes, yes, the resurrection has disrupted us, Living Word Church. And it's up to us to stay open to it continually disrupting us. But I was so encouraged this morning to look around and see a couple people who I know are facing difficult things. And yet, when we sing about the fact that Jesus is raised from the dead, we get a little bit of perspective and we allow those struggles to take a backseat. And so, for those early Christians, the resurrection was disruptive, right? Many of them had followed Jesus during his earthly ministry, they believed in him, they thought that he was the Messiah. And so, they would never have expected him to be resurrected. First of all, because if you believe Jesus is the Messiah, then you don't think Jesus will die. Because that's not what the Messiah was supposed to do. So they wouldn't have expected Jesus to be resurrected in that sense. And once he did die, they would not have thought to themselves, oh, he'll be raised on the third day. No, that only happens right at the day of the kingdom. So they would have simply assumed we must have been wrong about Jesus as being the Messiah in the first place. And so shortly after that, a small group of those early Jesus followers begin to, cl- to claim that Jesus has been raised and that they have seen him and spoken with him and touched his resurrected body and felt the holes in his hands and all kinds of crazy things And when that happens, the majority of those early Christians who didn't witness that would have had to ask themselves, do we believe this claim? Can we believe that Jesus has, in fact, been raised from the dead? And if we do believe it, what does that change? And how does it change it? Right? How does this disruptive thing make a difference if it's true? And now, you might be wondering why I have gone on a tangent about the resurrection when our passage for this morning doesn't mention the resurrection. And it's because, although 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-20, or whatever it is, doesn't mention the resurrection explicitly, what it deals with is consequences of the resurrection. Right? Because, church, if Jesus has been resurrected, think, think in the mindset of those early Christians. Resurrection only happens... When the kingdom comes, on the day of the kingdom. So if Jesus has been resurrected, then what has happened? The kingdom has somehow come. The day of the kingdom has arrived. It has not arrived in the way anyone thought it would. It's very different from what we were trained to believe. But somehow it must have arrived if the resurrection has come upon us. And yes, it is still to come in a fuller sense. You know, at a future day we know this. But that does not change the reality that if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then the kingdom has come upon us. Jesus himself proclaimed this, right? Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand over and over again. The kingdom of God is in your midst, Jesus said. And when Jesus was resurrected, he testified to this. And this reality makes all the difference in the world, right? Because in Jesus, somehow, this disruption Jesus has caused means that the future has somehow broken into the present, right? What we thought was reserved for that future day is somehow happening in the present day. Jesus has, has somehow brought the kingdom of God from the future into the present. And yes, it's coming in the future, but it's somehow present here now. And we are the people of Jesus, right? And so we, in some way, are a people of the future living in the present. And that means precisely that the realities of the future are to be presently true of us, although they may not be of the world. Amen? So when we read Scripture and we come across these descriptions of how things are going to be when God one day makes everything right, those are not future realities for us. They're present realities. They're things that Jesus, by His Spirit, is making possible among us even here this morning. Let that sink in for a minute. And this is where things connect directly to our passage for today. Again, the Old Testament was the Bible in the minds of those early Christians. For the people Paul is writing to in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the Bible is the Old Testament. And one of the most significant things the Old Testament has to say about what will happen when the day of the kingdom comes, is found in the prophet Joel. God says through Joel that in those days, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. When the day of the kingdom comes, Joel says, the spirit of God will be poured out on all flesh. For Jews, this is unprecedented, right? This is an unheard of thing because when you read Israel's story in the Old Testament, the presence of God is with them, but it's contained to the tabernacle and later to the temple. And the spirit of God in the Old Testament comes upon certain people at certain times for certain purposes. Right? We see people like Samuel or Saul or Samson or others who the Spirit of God anoints to, to communicate a certain message or to accomplish a certain task. That's how the Spirit functioned in their story. But somehow the claim of the New Testament, the reality of the post-resurrection life, the reality of the day of the kingdom, is that the people of Jesus are the temple of God's presence. And that the Spirit of God rests upon each and every one of them. Fills them, covers them, gives them new life. This is exactly what Peter refers to in Acts chapter 2. The first time that the Spirit is poured out upon the people of God in the New Testament. As you know, the story is the Spirit of God comes down in the room where the apostles are praying. And the room begins to shake and Tongues of fire cover their heads and they begin to speak in other tongues. And the people ask, uh, when, when the crowds see this, they gather around and they ask if they're drunk because they have no explanation for what's happening. And Peter says, fellow Jews and all of you who live here, let me explain to you what's going on. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. God's spirit has been poured out. The day of the kingdom has come in Jesus and in his resurrection. And so it's not hard, church, for us to imagine this young, passionate, and yet wide-eyed and maybe frightened Thessalonian church struggling to understand what it means that Jesus has been raised from the dead that the day of the kingdom has come and the Spirit of God has been poured out on all flesh. And so in our passage this morning, when Paul urges them, do not quench the Spirit. His point is, be open to the Spirit. Be open to the new things God is doing among you. Don't use what you thought was supposed to happen. Don't use your, your old... Understanding to keep this new move of God in a box so you can keep it on the shelf nice and neat. Paul urges them, don't close yourself off. Don't build up walls to prevent the Spirit from doing what he desires to do among you. Paul loves this church. And he's a pastorally gifted guy. And he desires for the fullness of God's work to happen among them. So he says, don't quench the Spirit. Don't Treat prophecy with contempt. Don't disregard it. Yes, it's different from how it used to be. The Spirit of God used to rest upon certain individuals. Words of prophecy used to come through certain anointed people. But now the Spirit of God is doing something new. Yes, we must test words of prophecy and reject that which is evil. But don't let that cause you to not be open to receiving and embracing that which is from God. Yes, there was a time when God's prophetic voice only came through the prophets, but in these days it comes through all who are filled with the Spirit of God. That means you, and you, and you, and you, and me, and you. God is doing a new thing, Paul says. Be open to the working of his Spirit. And this was the situation that the early church found itself in. And Paul's encouragement to them is that though they be vigilant to test the word of prophecy, they be open to embracing that which is good. And though that early church was unique because they were some of the first to experience this new work that God was doing. And in our case, yes, we have, you know, 2,000 years to look back on and study And see what God has been up to. Church, we can't pretend that we have a catalog of all the ways the Spirit of God wants to work among us. We can't presume that we have mastered the working of the Holy Spirit, right? Many of us have different experiences with the Holy Spirit, right? Perhaps depending on how old you are, you might have experienced the Holy Spirit in the 60s or 70s with the charismatic revivals or in the 90s at Promise Keepers, or in the 2000s, if you're me, at Acquire the Fire. The Spirit of God works in a myriad of different ways, but just because we've experienced it in a certain way doesn't mean we've got it all figured out. No. To presume that we do would be precisely what it means to quench the Spirit. I don't know about you. A week ago, I did not really know what it meant to quench the Spirit. So naturally, I asked Bill Prince. And Bill said, (laughs) Bill said that to quench the spirit is to put out the fire of the spirit. Church, the spirit of God is an all-consuming fire. And God in his grace makes us the timber or the kindling that the spirit wants to set ablaze. And so... Paul's encouragement to the Thessalonians was that they remain open to the Spirit. And though they were unique, there is some sense in which we are not so different from them, right? Because the Spirit of God cannot be categorized. We can't pretend that we know how the Spirit of God wants to work this morning and in our day. The Spirit of God is boundless and limitlessly creative in the way that he works in our lives. So just like that Thessalonian church, instead of trying to keep God in a box of how we've experienced him in the past, we are to be a people open to the Spirit. And that makes this a particularly difficult sermon for me to end. Because the tendency is to try to explain it, but to say too much Would be to put the Spirit in familiar categories so that we don't feel too uncomfortable with how He works in our lives. I think the difference, church, is that the temptation is for us to try to catch the Spirit, catch what the Spirit is doing. And Paul's encouragement to the Thessalonians and to us is that we rather be caught by the Spirit. The Spirit of God is a wind that blows wherever it wishes and catches us up in the breeze. It's an all-consuming fire that sets ablaze whatever it touches. It cannot be contained to our categories. So we're going to sing to end this morning. And as we do so, let me just challenge you with this briefly. Paul says uh, in, I believe, 1 Corinthians, that the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening Encouraging and comfort. Have you ever spoken a word of strengthening, encouraging, encouragement, or comfort to someone in this room? Have you ever received a word of strengthening, encouraging, encouragement, or comfort from someone in this room? It is a beautiful, beautiful thing. It builds up the church like nothing else I have ever experienced. When one believer goes to another and says, God has a word to encourage you. God has a word to strengthen you or to comfort you in your grief or your trial. And at risk of putting categories on God, I would challenge us this morning and this week to seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And to ask him how he would have us speak those words to one another. Maybe this week or maybe next Sunday you come back and the Lord has given you something for someone. Do not underestimate the power of that word. My life has been transformed by it. Can I have you raise your hand if you've experienced that in some way or another? Your life being touched, changed, transformed by a prophetic word from another person? It's tempting for us to take the idea of the prophetic and make it, you know, to to make it, what it was in the Old Testament, effectively. It's too big for us. That's for the pastor or the elder, right? No, Paul's claim is that the Spirit of God longs to speak the word of prophecy from each one of us to another. So this week, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and ask him how he would speak through you to someone else in this room. And then seek them out. And have the boldness and the courage to say, the, the Lord has given me a word for you. You don't have to have all the answers for that person. You don't have to know what's going on in their life. Your job is to be faithful, to speak the word of the Lord to them, and to say amen. Okay. Let's pray, and then we'll sing. Lord, we are grateful that in Jesus a new day has dawned, that the kingdom is among us, it is breaking into the world even now, and that because of this, The Spirit of God has been poured out upon your people. Lord, we declare that we are your people, and that reality speaks to us. And Lord, many of us have experienced the working of the Spirit in myriad different ways. Some of us may never have experienced it. Lord, we pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would confound our categories and our understanding, reach into the deepest parts of us and fill us up with that consuming fire. Lord, that you would break through the walls that may have been put up in our hearts. God, things that are unfamiliar seem to scare us a bit. And yet, Lord, we long, as Paul encouraged us this morning, to be open to the Spirit. We confess that Jesus has been raised from the dead and the Spirit has been poured out. And that we are the people to whom it is given. And Lord, we pray this morning that your spirit would work in us. God, that you would use us to speak words of prophecy to each other. That we might encourage, strengthen, and comfort one another. God, we don't want that to be reserved to certain individuals and times and places. You don't want that either. God, you have changed everything in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so we pray this morning that you would form us as a people of the kingdom. God, that your spirit would make all the difference in our lives. And God, that we would be a people who are indeed caught by the spirit. That you would catch us up in the wind of your spirit and take us on an adventure we might never have imagined. Lord, we thank you for being here with us this morning. We pray that you would make us open to your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen.